10. August 1, 1945. Wednesday. Afternoon. After the Herald Group's desperate prayers produced the seeming miracle of a makeshift raft, they found that the raft men were on a mission. They were going to swim to the Philippines. These men, none of whom Harold recognized, were adamant that the Navy wasn't looking for Indianapolis. If anyone was looking for them, these sailors argued, they would already have been found. Harold didn't want to admit it, but he suspected they were right. The raft crew's logic was this. The closer they got to the Philippines, the better the chance they'd be rescued. Do any of you want to go with us? One of the raft men said. Harold looked at their little vessel. It was really a pair of 40-millimeter ammo cans and four produce crates, lashed together with strips of torn cloth, not at all seaworthy. But what was on top of the raft had already caught his attention. A pile of Kapok life vests, some with wear still left in them. The raft crew had removed the vests from dead men and pulled them aboard to dry out. Harold's Kapok was so waterlogged that it was barely keeping his head out of the water. Designed to last 48 hours, it had lasted more than 60 and was almost spent. The fresher ones aboard the raft seemed another answer to prayer. I'm going to join them, Harold told Spooner. If you go, Harold, I'm going with you, Spooner said. Harold and Spooner did their part to get closer to the Philippines. Towing or pushing the makeshift raft, all the travelers kicked and paddled west, buoyed less by actual progress on their impossible quest than by the vigor men feel when they take hold of their own destinies. During the journey, Harold bumped into a crate of potatoes. The brown orbs oozed rot almost to their cores, but the men were able to peel away the putrid flesh to reveal edible centers. They ate their fill, and Harold stuffed the leftovers in his pockets. Night fell, blade swift. The sun's residual warmth bled quickly away. Later, near midnight, Harold heard voices in the distance. The whole group commenced kicking, steering their raft toward these new sounds shooting out of the night. Soon, they met another knot of survivors, and Harold's heart swelled when he saw someone he knew. It was Lieutenant McKissick. Harold had gotten to know the jovial Texan while serving on the bridge as Captain McVeigh's orderly. Unlike some officers who lorded it over the enlisted, McKissick was helpful, making sure Harold had all the tools he needed to do a standout job for the captain. It didn't take long for Harold to see that McKissick had taken charge of his own small group and that the men had willingly led him. Harold handed over some of the leftover potatoes. After a bit of reasoning with McKissick, the two groups joined forces in the westward press. For Harold, it seemed God was blessing his group's three-hour prayer vigil. That is, until he passed out in exhaustion and awoke to find himself floating in a debris field of human parts and Spooner gone. Harold removed his life jacket, which was too waterlogged to hold his head out of the water, and now sat on it, riding low in the water amid carnage so putrid 
he could taste the rotting stench in the air. Somehow, he and Spooner had become separated in the dark. In fact, the entirety of the two recently linked survivor groups had vanished, except for McKissick and a dead sailor who floated face down in the chum. Harold berated himself. Why hadn't he held on to his friend tighter? They were Marines, he told Spooner. He remembered his promise. If Spooner agreed not to give up, they'd both make it through. Now he was gone. Harold thought about trying to find him, but knew he was too weak to make a serious effort. And Spooner's eyes had puffed up into such blazing, scarlet sores that he'd never be able to find Harold. Spooner's dead anyway, Harold reasoned, and soon I will be too. Harold rode his precarious perch up and down the swells, with McKissick nearby. Blood swirled in the water, and human debris stretched as far as they could see. The dead sailor tagged along, face down and cruciform, brushing against them occasionally, as if to remind Harold and McKissick that he was a part of their group, too. Lieutenant Redmain had begun hallucinating the previous night and had only worsened. He commenced taking small, furtive sips of ocean water, and shortly after, screaming maniacally. He tried several times to leap from his raft, often shouting his favorite refrain, I have got to get to the engine room! Finally, Ensign Twibble grabbed him and stabbed him with a morphine serrette. Then, to ensure Redmayne's safety, Twibble tied him to his own vest so he couldn't jump again. Now, on Thursday, the lieutenant remained unresponsive, and Twibble believed himself to be the last officer still in control of his faculties. Still, he didn't have the energy to do much of anything. The best he could do was wait for help to come and try to keep Redmayne alive. Richard Stevens and Florian Stamm had both served on Indy for more than a year. Now they watched as their once large and close-knit floater-net group came undone. Around them, men drowned or were eaten, or sometimes one and then the other. Stamm, whose mind was unraveling as quickly as the group, had his friend Louis de Bernardi to thank for his survival. De Bernardi, who had helped crane Major Furman's crate aboard at Mare Island, was also Stam's supervisor. Now, any time Stam started acting crazy, de Bernardi would slap the hell out of him, bringing him back to his senses. Stevens, on the other hand, turned inward in order to hang on. He thought of his family and their farm back in Alabama and dreamed of toiling at the livestock chores he once loathed. It was a simple life, but he'd do anything to get back there. On the periphery of the Haynes group, John Woolston saw glimpses of a swimmer approaching from the far distance, just the top of a head and some splashing every few seconds. As with all the other swimmers around him, his life jacket floated lower and lower and he had trouble seeing more than a few feet in any direction. The troughs and crests of the passing swells opened and closed the sight line. In rare intervals, 
he could tell the swimmer was definitely approaching. Finally, he could make the man out. It was his roommate, Ensign Eames. After breaking up the lewd behavior in the Redmain group, Eames had had enough. He caught a break when a high swell lifted him, and he saw another survivor group several hundred yards away. It turned out to be the Haynes group, and when Eames made it over, he related the debaucheries taking place in the group he'd left behind. Then Eames swam away. It would be the last time anyone reported seeing him. That night, a gurgling scream ripped Woolston from a light doze. He jerked his head up to see two sailors, tangled and fighting. There's a Jap here, and he's trying to kill me, one was shouting. A bright moon frosted the sea, and Woolston could pick out the men as clearly as if someone had switched on a light. He yanked his legs horizontal and swam toward the men to break it up. But the violence spread like a virus to the next man and the next, and suddenly it was a melee, water churning, men shrieking and thrashing and growling curses. Woolston saw men clubbing each other, pushing other men's heads under the waves and holding them down. Dr. Haynes also found himself in the middle of this all-out combat. Park had been a restraining force, a governor on the idling engine of man's basest instincts. But his death had thrown the throttle wide open. Around Haynes, the free-for-all gained intensity, fueled by hallucinations and insanity. He untied himself from the hundred-foot line and pushed away from the man next to him. He urged others to do the same. When Woolston reached the edge of the brawl, he broke two men apart. Wrapping his arms tight around the aggressor, Woolston yelled fiercely in his ear, Hey, calm down, calm down. He's your buddy. Look at him. He's not a Jap. He's your buddy. Gradually, the sailor went slack in his arms. Then Woolston heard another scream, swam toward it, and repeated the process. He could not say how long the chaos lasted or how many fights he broke up, but he knew he had not been able to reach them all in time. The storm died gradually, cycling down until an eerie quiet spread across the group. Men who had formerly hung together now backed away from each other, tense and wary. Atrocities ravaged most of the groups that Wednesday night. A brief season of madness, from which many would not emerge alive. In Cozell Smith's group, the water was littered with bodies, including those whose friends had executed them under the pact. Already nearing his own breaking point, the respected coxswain in the group, who perhaps shouldered the greatest burden and stepped up when others couldn't, found himself in an unbearable position. One of his closest friends, Curtis Pace, was losing his grip on reality. Pace was the man who had seen sharks early on, but fibbed about it to a kid nearby because he didn't want to scare him. Now, the coxswain swam over and found Pace exhausted and rambling. The coxswain treaded water and wrestled with himself. To this point, he had been the enforcer of the group, but Pace was a good friend. Was he really a danger to anyone? You have to do it, man, came a voice from his side. 
It's just a matter of time before he goes out of his head completely and comes after one of us. We all agreed, even him. The coxswain locked eyes with another man who shared the burden of the pact and saw a message there. He then whirled on the sailor who had urged him to take pace out. I'll do you before I do him, the coxswain snapped. Then he drew back his arm and slapped pace so hard that he came to his senses. To keep their friend out of danger, the three men linked arms for the rest of the night, praying that all this would end soon and that at least they would die together. 11. August 2, 1945. Thursday. Morning. Philippine Sea. Wilbur Gwynn could hardly believe it. The new antenna was already broken. Flying over the Philippine Sea in his Lockheed PV-1 Ventura bomber, Wilbur Chuck Gwynn, a lieutenant junior grade, was already an hour behind schedule. It was the new aerial weight they were testing. Designed to extend the Ventura's trailing antenna wire, the weight was supposed to improve long-range radio communications. So far, though, it had been nothing but a pain in the neck. Gwyn had taken off early that morning from his base in Peleliu, Palau, at the very bottom of the Horseshoe Archipelago that formed the Philippine Sea. Before commencing their regular sector search for enemy craft, Gwyn's crew had reeled out the antenna wire. The new weight lasted all of two minutes before snapping off, leaving the wire to whip and twirl in the wind. Gwyn had to make a 180 and return to base to get a new one installed. At 9.10 a.m., he rolled down the runway again, determined this time to wait until he was well underway in his sector to test the blasted thing again. Now it was just after 11 a.m. Gwyn, call sign Gambler 17, was 350 miles almost due north of Palau, cruising at 3,000 feet straight into the sun. Under the hard glare, the Philippine Sea appeared as smooth and reflective as a foil sheet. At this altitude, he could see 20 square miles at a glance. His crew reeled out the antenna wire again. So far, so good. Spoking out from the southern rim of the Philippine Sea, the unofficial backwater of the war, these ho-hum sector searches clashed with Chuck Gwynn's passion for excitement. Born on a California ranch nestled between the Santa Cruz and Diablo Mountains, he had always been an up-and-comer. While still in his teens, he went to work for Douglas Aircraft, simultaneously studying at the University of Southern California. In 1943, at age 21, he earned his Navy wings and became a test pilot. Now, at 24, Gwynn was an aircraft commander in the patrol bomber squadron VPB-152, his PV-1 Ventura, the race car of the Pacific Patrol Fleet. Gwynn's chief radioman, Bill Hartman, popped up on the intercom with bad news. The antenna weight had broken off again. Our long-range radio is now inoperative, sir, Hartman said, exasperated. Gwynn sighed. This time, the weight had lasted five minutes. 
Gwyn turned the controls over to his co-pilot, Lieutenant Warren Caldwell, and ducked out of the cockpit into the Ventura's belly. The burbling hum of her 2,000-horsepower engines filled his ears. Behind the plane, the antenna wire whirled and snapped like a ringmaster's whip. If the boys didn't get it under control, it might lash the Ventura's tail and damage it. Gwyn scowled. Johnson, Hickman, reel that thing in. Joe Johnson was Gwyn's plane captain, the enlisted man in charge of the aircraft's material condition. Herb Hickman was the aviation ordnanceman aboard. Gwyn watched as they retracted the wire, but he was not one to give up. There was a window in the Ventura's deck. Maybe Johnson and Hickman could pull the antenna wire through it, then attach it to something inside the fuselage to make it trail properly. Here, sir, try this, Johnson said. It was a piece of rubber hose. Gwyn attached it to the end of the wire, and the crew paid it out again, into the Ventura's slipstream. Gwyn bent down and peered through the window to take a look, and almost as quickly leapt to his feet again and dashed for the cockpit. What's the matter? Hickman shouted over the propeller noise. Gwyn shouted back, Look down, and you'll see! Nearly four days in the water had sanded away the sharp edges of John Wollstone's reason. The morning of the fourth day he knew two things. One, he was extremely hungry, and two, there was food in the water. He could look down and see it, a swarm of sharks circling not far below, right there for the taking. Wollston had seen other men hit by sharks, had heard their bubbling screams. He'd been wondering vaguely why he hadn't been attacked. Probably his gray uniform made him blend in with the water. Wollston bobbed gently in his sodden life jacket. The sun baked his head, but the water was cool and incredibly clear. He gazed down through wavering shafts of sunlight and measured the predators with the practiced eye of an engineer. They were big, twelve feet, give or take, and also delicious-looking. A few bites out of one of those and he could last out here a lot longer. But invisible as he was, how could he get the sharks to come? As a kid, he'd fished a lot in the San Juan Islands. He recalled that he always caught more with live bait because the wriggling attracted the fish. What could he use? His toes. Quickly, Wollston stripped off his socks. He saw that his feet, contrasted against his uniform, were parchment white and spotlit by the sun. Perfect. He thrust his toes toward the sea bottom and began wiggling them at the sharks. Take the bait, was all he could think take the bait. He felt ebullient, poised for a breakthrough, giddy with hope. Woolston kept this up for a few minutes, but the sharks persisted in ignoring his toes. Then slowly, his feet got tired. Finally, he gave up and put his socks back on. In Gwyn's Ventura, Herb Hickman pasted his face to the window and peered down at the ocean. It took about twenty seconds before waves, almost imperceptible at this altitude, lifted sunlight back to his eyes. Then he saw what had Gwyn excited. It was an oil slick. 
Probably, a Japanese sub had crash-dived in an attempt to hide when her skipper picked up the Ventura. But the enemy skipper could not hide his telltale trail. Hickman's heart rate picked up to a fast staccato. Their routine patrol had just turned into a search-and-destroy mission. In the cockpit, Gwyn climbed into his seat and swung the plane around, tail to the sun. Now he could see more clearly. He put the Ventura into a diving turn and asked Colwell if the radar was showing anything. Nothing, Colwell shouted. It's like glass down there. You can't see a thing. Gwyn issued orders to his crew. Arm depth charges. Open the bomb bay doors. Hickman prepared the charges. There were six aboard, 325 pounds each. And Gwyn nosed the plane down until her belly skimmed the ocean at 900 feet, no higher than a brooding thundercloud in a close storm. Galvanized, he flew the oil slick as if it were a road map, a shining black path that would lead him to the enemy. Resignation had set in among McVeigh's group of castaways. They would likely die out here. The previous day, McVeigh told the men that they had now drifted out of the shipping lane, reducing even further their chances of being seen. He did not tell them he had ceased to hope. Whenever conversation lapsed in his ragged fleet, images of the disaster spun through his mind. He thought of the men he knew, Moore, Flynn, Janney, the dentist Earl Henry. Henry's perfect model of Indy, a gift for the new baby boy he would never meet, now lay on the sea bottom in the belly of the real ship. McVeigh mourned his sailors. In his mind, he could see every single man. Silently, he called the roll, knowing they would never answer again. Soon, the men spotted a large cardboard box floating near the rafts. They paddled over and discovered that it was a case of Lucky Strike cigarettes. A couple of men pulled it from the sea, ripped it open, and passed a carton to each man. Yeoman Alton Havens searched through his and found a treasure, a single dry cigarette, about half of which could be smoked. Other men also found smokable butts, but how to light them with the matches ruined? They came up with a plan. They'd rip the collar from a kapok jacket, toss it in the 40-millimeter ammo can they'd found, and fire a flare into the can to start a little fire. They pleaded with the captain to let them do it. McVeigh thought it over. The flares had proven too low and dim to signal an aircraft. Why not let the boys enjoy what might be their last real pleasure in this life? He gave his consent, and the sailors let out a little whoop. As Thursday ticked by, Morgan gazed over at the next raft and watched Harold Shearer. He sat motionless, with a vacant stare, arms thrust out, bandages grimy with fuel oil. Morgan felt sorry for him. Shearer was already in tremendous pain, but then to keep holding his arms aloft that way, it must be sheer misery. Morgan didn't think he could hang on much longer. He also did not know that the next day, August 3rd, was Shearer's birthday. He would turn 25, if he lived that long.
For his part, Morgan felt almost good. Given their predicament, a ride on a soggy raft was pretty cushy compared with the alternatives. He let his mind drift, daydreaming. Would they survive? Yes, he thought. Though it seemed against reason, he had little doubt. Surely a rain squall would blow in at some point. They could catch water in the canvas and replenish the kegs. And with the fish they were catching, Morgan felt they could hold out for a long time. Add in a little luck, and they'd be all right. Hey, Morgan! Lanter's voice roused him from his trance. Look, Lanter said, jerking his chin toward the horizon. Do you see it? Morgan turned his eyes toward the line that divided sky and sea. He squinted, focused, squinted and refocused. Then he saw it, a black speck moving back and forth, just above the horizon. I see it, he said. Is it a bird? I don't think so. Morgan locked his gaze on the speck. It didn't act like a bird, but oscillated left, then right again in straight lines. Still, it was awfully small. I guess it's a bird, Morgan started to say when the speck flashed a glint of light. Hell, it's a plane, Lanter cried. In the rafts, all hands swiveled to look, all except for Shearer, who did not seem to care. The rest of the men set up a murmuring. Where most had sat mute and sphinx-like, now anticipation bubbled up. Nineteen pairs of eyes locked onto the mystery plane and did not let go. Twelve. Lieutenant Gwynne followed the oil slick for about fifteen nautical miles before reaching its tip. He was about to order Hickman to release the first depth charges when he noticed a strange lump in the smooth black surface. Then more anomalies. Dozens more resembling nothing so much as bumps on a cucumber. What in the world were they? Secure from bomb run, he ordered over the intercom. The Ventura zoomed low over water, and the bumps resolved into the last thing Gwyn expected to see. People. He checked the time, 11.18 a.m., and pulled his yoke to bring the plane around for another pass. He and Caldwell counted heads. Ten, twenty, thirty. Gwyn descended to three hundred feet to take a closer look. Now he could easily see oil-covered men waving, splashing, slapping the water. The crew in the belly of the plane stared down through the Bombay doors. Hickman was so astonished he would later have no words to describe the feeling. A thought arrowed through Gwyn's mind. Ducks on the pond. Who were these people? During his pre-flight brief, he'd been told of ships passing along the route between Guam and Leyte. The oil slick was huge and seemed to indicate that a large vessel had been sunk. But there had been no mention of a sinking during his brief, and none since he'd been airborne. Were these Americans? Men in the water, Gwyn shouted over the intercom. Drop the life raft. Drop sonobuies. He hoped someone in the water would know how to use the buoys to communicate. Quickly, Gwyn and Colwell calculated a dead reckoning position and passed it to Chief Hartman, 
who at 11.25 a.m. transmitted a coded dispatch to VPB-152, their patrol squadron at Palau, and to all ships in the area. Thirty survivors sighted send assistance. Gwyn continued his visual probe of the oil slick, flying low enough to see but not so low as to rattle the men in the water with his propeller wash. Soon, he spotted another group of men, this one large, as many as 150. Incredible. The Ventura crew dropped another sauna buoy and took a Loran fix, or long-range navigation position. At 12.45 p.m., Gwyn had Chief Hartman send another coded message, Gambler 17's position. 11 degrees, 54 minutes north, 133 degrees, 47 minutes east, along with the new count of survivors and a request for rescue ships. The long-range antenna wire was still a tangled mess. Gwyn hoped the transmission was going out. The Morgan Group had barely begun using their signal mirrors when the plane broke off its patrol and flew straight toward the flotilla. As it neared, it took shape as a PV-1 Ventura, a U.S. Navy bomber. The castaways began to whoop and holler and wave their arms. Elation filled Morgan as he watched the pilot put the Ventura into a gentle dive and buzz in low just above the group. About a hundred yards further on, he saw an object eject from the plane and hit the water. The pilot then pulled up, cut a circle in the sky over the rafts, and flew off. Near the flotilla, a bright yellow-green ring blossomed in the sea. Aviation machinist mate Second Class Jim Graham was sitting in the after-station hatch of a PBM-5 Mariner a patrol bomber flying boat, gazing down at the vast, smooth mirror of the ocean. Graham was off-duty. The Mariner, piloted by Lieutenant Sam Worthington, had taken off from Saipan at the northeastern edge of the Horseshoe, three and a half hours earlier. Now westbound for Lady, the plane was skimming over broken clouds at 8,000 feet when Graham spotted an anomaly. Interrupting the ocean's glossy, boundless sweep was a large yellow-green blotch. It looked to him like a die marker. On the intercom, Graham notified Worthington, who immediately banked left and entered a steep descent. At one to two hundred feet, the mariner zoomed over a group of twelve to fifteen men wearing gray kapok life jackets, followed by more knots of swimmers and a wooden raft, the whole scene set in a thick, winding slick of oil. The twelve-man crew of the plane came to full alert. Japs! But looking closer, maybe not. Was it a ditched B-29 crew? No. Too much oil. Had a tanker sunk then? No. Too many men in the water. Well, they were survivors of some kind. The pilot, Worthington, spotted Gwyn's Ventura orbiting some distance away and raised him on the radio. Gwyn briefed Worthington and said he was concerned that his messages hadn't gone out because of his fouled antenna wire. 
Worthington replied that he'd climb to altitude and transmit an all-points message. His crew kicked out yellow life rafts and jackets, water breakers, and a Gibson girl, a portable emergency radio. Then, as Worthington climbed, his radioman hopped to and began a continuous transmission to Lady. Seaman Harold Bray, the sailor who hadn't believed the quartermaster, Frenchy, when he said Indy would sink, was floating on the fringes of the Gibson floater net group when he saw objects falling from Gwyn's Ventura. One of them splashed down nearby, and Bray swam to it, charged with hope. It was a sonobuoy, but having been at sea for all of two weeks, he had never seen one before. Bray shook it, listening for the slosh of drinking water. Hearing none, he inspected it more closely. Was it some new kind of life-saving gear? Did it contain food? Finally, he decided he didn't know what to do with the damn thing and cast it away. If it wasn't water, food, or a raft, it was useless. Bray stared up again at the plane in the sky. It seemed to be flying away. Don't leave us, he screamed in his mind, or maybe even out loud. Adrenaline burst forth in Ed Harrell's body, as if from a geyser. I hear a plane, he cried, heart pounding. So do I, McKissick yelled. Chuck Gwynn's Ventura had finally reached the part of the 25-mile oil slick where McKissick and Harrell floated in the muck. Harrell began to wave his arms, to cry, to splash, to pray. McKissick joined in as thoughts sped through Harrell's mind a chorus of hope. Just as it seemed the aircraft would pass over their heads and fly on, the pilot made a dive. The plane was a PV-1 Ventura, and it flew low over the two screaming men, who were now triumphant. They'd been seen. The Ventura circled back in a low oval and shoved out a life raft. It tumbled from the sky and splashed down about a hundred yards from McKissick. Before flying off, the pilot ratified their joy by rocking his wings, a universal aviation sign used to acknowledge a friendly. McKissick made his way to the raft, followed by Harold, who paused on the way to say a farewell benediction over the dead sailor who'd been traveling with them. Though planes had flown over so high and so often that the men in his group had begun to ignore them, when Harpo Solea saw the Ventura, he knew they'd been saved. Joy overtook him, and a surge of relief flushed tears from his eyes. He laughed and screamed. He thought of his Arizona home, his mother and father, Dolores. But as the Ventura flew off, he realized he had to be careful. He hadn't been rescued yet, and he was damned if he was going to get this close, then drown like Markman, or become lunch for a shark. 13. August 2nd, 1945. Thursday. Day. Peleliu Airfield. Palau. At Peleliu, Lieutenant Commander George Atterbury commanding officer of the patrol bomber squadron VPB-152, 
intercepted a transmission from one of his pilots flying up around Route Petty. Knowing how long the code room jockeys took to decrypt things, Atterbury decoded it himself, saving hours. The message was garbled, something about men in the water, probably some flyers. He drove over to another outfit, VPB-23, a squadron of Catalina flying boats. Atterbury hunted down the duty pilot, Lieutenant Adrian Marks. Atterbury knew Gwyn could only circle the rescue area to the limit of his fuel capacity. It wouldn't be a good idea for him to return to Peleliu before another plane arrived on scene to relieve him. Without eyes on the survivors at all times, they might never be found again. Marks would have to leave immediately, Atterbury said. Marks and his crew climbed into the PBY-5A Catalina flying boat, a thick-bodied seaplane with a distinctive parasol wing. Unlike planes designed with two wings, one attached to each side of the fuselage, a parasol wing is a single, wide airfoil held above the fuselage by struts, like a biplane, but without the lower wing. The Catalina's large twin propellers were mounted side by side near the center of the wing just aft of and above the cockpit. This high placement kept the engines clear of ocean spray. The Catalina was a patrol plane, but when deployed for rescue, one of its primary missions, it was known as a Dumbo. On the runway, Marx assumed the call sign Playmate 2 turned up his engines, and purred off to the north. The time was 12.42 p.m. About a minute later, Atterbury took off from Peleliu in a Ventura, call sign Gambler Leader. From the word Marks received from Atterbury, another Ventura was circling a life raft up near Route Petty. Marks assumed a plane had ditched. Probably one of the carrier boys, needing both assistance and consolation. Marx and his co-pilot, Irving Lefkowitz, were to fly to the scene and relieve the Ventura on station. Marx half expected to drop some equipment, spend half a day circling a lone survivor, then vector in a ship to scoop him out of the drink. Even that would be a hell of a lot more interesting than cooling his heels on the island. For three days, he'd been listening to Glenn Miller records and flipping through novels, while his last mission gnawed at his brain. On July 30th, he and his crew had flown out over the ocean in search of a downed aircrew, but came up empty. Failure was an unusual experience for Marx, and it left a sense of disquiet in his chest. By age 24, he had graduated from Northwestern University and Indiana University Law School, passed the bar, married the daughter of the Chief Justice of the Indiana Supreme Court, and accepted a commission as an ensign in the Naval Reserve. Stationed at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese attacked on December 7, 1941, Mark served on a ship that fought back. The following year, he earned his pilot wings, and now, at 28, had logged untold hours in the Dumbo most of them rescuing less fortunate pilots who had lost their airplanes to the sea. Though Atterbury launched after Marks, his plane was faster, and he was already ahead. 
Marx was only 80 miles north of Palau, northbound in trail of Atterbury, when he spotted a destroyer escort steaming south below him. At altitude, the ship and its wake appeared as a thin, straight mark in the sea, as if an invisible child were tracing a white line with a stick. When Marx was overhead, the ship hailed him on the radio, just an acknowledgment of friendly forces, utterly routine. The ship turned out to be USS Cecil J. Doyle, and the skipper an acquaintance of his, Lieutenant Commander W. Graham Clater, a fellow lawyer from Indianapolis. Doyle was en route to Coastal Passage at the northern end of the Palau chain after an unsuccessful joint sea-air submarine hunt. Marks told him about the men in the water up near Route Petty. You're probably going to get rerouted up there, Marx said, his voice scratching over the frequency. Clater thought Marx was probably right. Whoever was in the water, somebody had to fish them out. It wouldn't be Marx's Dumbo, since open sea landings were both dangerous and forbidden. And it could take hours for new routing orders to crawl through clogged official channels. Clater thought it over. He didn't have orders, but... On Doyle's bridge, Clater told his officer of the deck to reverse course and increase speed to 22 knots. He'd worry about the paperwork later. Sam Worthington's mariner orbited over the rescue scene for two hours and 40 minutes, then pushed for Lady. Thirty minutes later, the crew sighted a lone swimmer in his skivvies, swimming west. But there was nothing they could do because they had already pushed out all their life-saving equipment. Graham, the crewman who first spotted the die marker, was heartsick. Here was this brave guy trying to swim for it, and they had nothing to offer him. Worthington's radioman transmitted the position and remained over the swimmer until Worthington knew Lady had a navigational fix. Then, with fuel running low, he had no choice but to press for Lady. With a prayer and a salute, the Mariner crew flew on. The swimmer never even looked up. At eight in the morning on Thursday, August 2nd, the surface control officer at Philippine Sea Frontier, a Lieutenant Green, looked over his expected arrivals. Indianapolis appeared on the list, but had not arrived. If she hadn't pulled in by now, she wasn't going to, Green thought. He dashed off a memo to the plotting section. Could he remove Indianapolis from the board? The reply came five hours later. No. There were reports coming in. Men in the water. A rising dread had begun percolating at commands around the Philippine Sea. At Lady, the surface operations officer, Captain Alfred Granham, learned that Indy should have arrived three days ago and had not. From Peleliu and the aircraft on scene, Frontier Commander Norman Gillette learned of men in the water. He, too, discovered that Indianapolis was missing. Gillette sent a message to Guam. Indianapolis has not arrived Lady X advise. Though brief, his dispatch vibrated with dawning panic. It sped to all stars around the Pacific. Admirals Nimitz, Murray, McCormick, 
and Oldendorf, to Commander Carter at Guam, and to Indianapolis herself. Gillette may have been hoping that Lieutenant Waldron's Guam departure message had been a mistake, that the great ship had actually never left port. But no. Guam replied to Gillette that Indy had indeed departed Guam for Leyte, nearly a week ago. Perhaps then, Indianapolis had reported to McCormick for training. Gillette sent the Admiral a plainly worded query. Has Indianapolis reported to you? McCormick's reply was equally plain. Negative. 14. August 2, 1945. Thursday. Day. Philippine Sea. Marx and Lefkowitz were still flying north over the open sea in the Dumbo that Atterbury had dispatched from Peleliu. At 2.10 p.m., they received a second message from the Ventura that was already flying up around Route Petty. There were 150 survivors in the water. How many? Marx thought. That couldn't be. There had been no word of a sinking. And if there really were that many ducks on the pond, the Navy would certainly know about it. This message was probably just as garbled as the first one. Still, he passed the information to Clater on Doyle and increased his airspeed. Aboard Doyle, Clater heard the pilots chatter. 150 men in the water? He called the engine room. What can you do to give me more speed? The ship was already steaming at flank speed and running hot. Down in the fire room, Coxswain Charles Doyle was wetting down shafts with a fire hose to keep from burning up a bearing. He heard the chief engineer tell Clater that he could coax a couple of more knots if he overrode or gagged the safety relief valves. The safeties were designed to relieve pressure so that the boilers didn't explode. Gagging them was dangerous and only the captain could order it done. In the fire room, the chief engineer hung up with Clater and turned to Doyle. Gag the safeties, he said. On the bridge, Clater made radio contact with Atterbury at 2.35 p.m., and Doyle assumed the call sign Bird Dog 1. A half hour later, Marks began picking up signals from Atterbury's plane, and just before four in the afternoon, had Atterbury's Ventura in sight. But he was not prepared for what he saw next. Men. Not dozens of them. Scores. Maybe hundreds. Marks raised Atterbury on the radio. Gambler leader, Playmate 2. Playmate 2, Gambler leader, go ahead. I am on station and have the survivors in sight. Roger, Playmate 2. There are a lot of them scattered over a wide area. Do not drop any equipment yet. I want to show you the area first, then you can decide how to deploy your rescue gear. Atterbury was concerned that Marks might drop all his gear to the first group in the water, not realizing there were more. Many, many more. Flying in trail of Atterbury, Marks took in the footprint formed by the survivor groups, which now spread over 25 square miles. Skimming over the whitecaps at a recon altitude of just a couple of hundred feet, Marks, Lefkowitz, and their navigator 
Ensign Morgan Hensley, saw a dot pattern of oil-covered men. Most were clustered together in groups of ten or more. Some clung to life rafts, others in sodden vests only to each other. Many floated alone. Groups composed primarily of rafts now form the leading edge of a motley survivor convoy that continued its west-southwest drift. Though Marx didn't know it, these groups had now blown 18 to 20 miles south of Route Petty and nearly 80 miles from the sinking site. At the opposite end of the oily residue, 30 to 40 miles northeast, the swimmers and those less exposed to the wind formed the tail end of the troop. These men remained nearly on Route Petty, but about 40 to 50 miles from where they began their slow journey. Marx was shocked at the sheer scope of the disaster unfurling before him. He started to encode a message, then stopped. There were rules about information security, but he decided that in this case, rules should be broken. He sent a message in plain English. Between 100 and 200 survivors at position reported. Need all survival equipment while daylight holds. Many survivors without rafts. Marx gave the message the highest possible priority, the same category as an enemy contact report. His radioman sent the message in the clear and reported an immediate Roger from Peleliu. What the radioman couldn't know was that the officer who received the message at Peleliu did nothing. He did not pass the message to Marx's skipper or to anyone else. He simply sat on it. Marx tipped the Dumbo's big wing port and starboard, cutting a trail behind Atterbury. Surveying the scene, he marveled. Out here in the open sea, the odds that these men would be spotted were so minute as to be unbelievable. What were the chances that the Ventura would fly directly over the survivors? From a normal sector search altitude, the head of a man floating in the water would be less than a speck, as undetectable as the diameter of the cross-section of a human hair seen endwise from across a room. In a word, invisible. While conducting a sector search, a pilot could take in 20 square miles at a glance, a box covering 400 miles. Under these conditions, even spotting the oil slick had been miraculous. The sea that day was preternaturally smooth. The term, like glass, was not hyperbole. It would take sunlight hitting the oil exactly right at the exact moment the crew had been looking at that exact spot for them to distinguish the black slick from the hundreds of miles of dark blue ocean that surrounded it. Marx considered the odds that these men had been spotted one in a billion. 300 miles west, the men of the high-speed transport ship USS Bassett had settled in for a quiet watch, the topside crew monitoring the race between the ship's bow wave and a spirited school of dolphins. Then radioman third-class James Bargsley received a message from the Philippine Sea Frontier, 
marked urgent. There were 150 men in the water, and Bassett was to proceed at best speed to assist. The skipper, Lieutenant Commander Harold J. Terrio, ordered all ahead, flank speed, and his crew snapped into action. The medical department came to full alert. In the galley, mess cooks began prepping light foods and fruit juices. The ship carried a complement of smaller boats called LCVPs, which stood for Landing Craft Vehicle Personnel, and were used mainly in amphibious operations to beach troops and equipment. Now, though, their shallow drafts and flat barge-like decks would prove perfect for hauling near-dead men from the sea. Intrigue stirred Bassett's crew. Survivors in the water from a mystery ship? Which ship could it be? Commands ashore were beginning to ask the same question. In short order, Bassett's radio men received a second message. The first vessel on scene was to advise Peleliu and all addresses what ship the survivors were from and the cause of the sinking. After leading Adrian Marks on an aerial tour over the survivors, Atterbury signaled the Dumbo's reconnaissance complete. Marks knew that no ship would arrive in the area until midnight. He decided to drop his gear, focusing on the survivors who had only life jackets. At 4.05 p.m., the crew opened a hatch and began shoving out life rafts, water casks, and other supplies. Rescue was their primary mission, and they were accustomed to the procedure. Then came a moment when Marks knew normal procedures would not be enough. His crew saw a man floating alone. Moments later, the man was gone, taken by a shark. Sunblind and exhausted, Seaman First Class Dick Thielen heard Marx's plane and saw a large rectangular shadow tumble from its belly. A raft, and only about fifty yards away. Thielen, his friend Robert Terry, and two more buddies from the Haynes Group agreed to swim for it. After floating without food or water for more than a hundred hours, each stroke of Thielen's arms felt like flopping a cast-iron post into the water, each kick as if his legs were made of stone. Out front, he made it to the raft, where some other men had already clambered aboard. Thielen looked back for his friends and was surprised to see one of them still some distance away, clutching his chest, his face a mask of agony. Then, in a blink, he disappeared. Thielen clutched the edge of the raft, shocked. Was it a heart attack? He glanced around wildly, looking for the other men. He saw no one but Terry, still swimming, slowly closing the distance. Terry's arms smacked weakly against the swells like toy paddles. He was struggling to stay afloat. Thielen wanted to go back and help, but he was so spent he feared he would drown. But that was okay, because Terry was only ten feet away now. Come on! Come on! Thielen yelled, stretching out his arm toward his friend. You're gonna make it! The encouragement was no sooner out of Thielen's mouth 
then his insides seized. A shark reared out of the water and snatched Terry from sight. Thielen clung to the raft, shaking all the way down to his feet. Certain he would be next, he waited to be eaten. But minutes piled up one upon the other, and death did not come for him. Why them, and not me? he asked himself in anguish. The sun was falling. The men already on the raft were too weak to pull Thielen up, and he was too weak to pull himself aboard. He hung on to the raft's edge and berated himself for agreeing to swim for it. Maybe, if they'd all stayed with their group, his friends would still be alive. As the afternoon wore on, more planes arrived from Peleliu, dropping rafts and survival gear, which fell from the sky like a life-giving rain. With the help of his friend Clarence Hopka, Kozel Smith made it to a raft, despite his shark-shredded hand. On the edges of Smith's group, Cletus Lebo and Clarence Hirschberger also watched objects tumble from the sky, including big tins of water. Many of these burst on impact, spilling their pure contents into the poison sea. Lebo's throat burned with thirst, and watching the tins break drove him over the edge. He let go of the floater net and swam away. He made it some distance, when Hirschberger caught up to him and hauled him back to the net. Lebo waited a while, then struck out again. Hirschberger splashed after him and pulled him back a second time. If Lebo broke away again, Hirschberger said, he'd have to let him go, because he wouldn't have the strength to go after him. What are you doing, anyway? Lebo's eyes lit up. Among all that gear dropping from the plane, he'd seen a box of B-29 bomber parts, Lebo said. We can put an airplane together and fly home. Hirschberger peered into his friend's overbright eyes and considered this for a moment. Cletus, it's getting dark, he finally said. Let's wait until morning and do it then. Okay. Lebo said simply. In the tilted logic of his delirium, the idea was just rational enough to save his life. 15. Aboard his Dumbo, Marx made a rebel decision. He keyed his mic and raised Atterbury. Gambler leader, playmate two. Playmate two, go ahead. I'm going to attempt an open sea landing. Roger that. Atterbury knew the rules against such an operation. An open sea landing was little more than a controlled crash into the backside of a wave. A Dumbo was designed with sufficient buoyancy to remain on the surface, but it had no pontoons or floats on which to land. Instead, the plane landed in the water on its belly. This model weighed 15 tons and initial contact with the water was always violent, usually popping rivets, or worse, opening seams in the hull. At stall speed and with near zero lift, the pilot had little control of the aircraft after first impact. Sometimes it took the strength of both pilots 
to hold the cockpit control column fully back in order to keep the plane from pitching over nose first and diving toward the bottom. But like Marx's crew, Atterbury had seen the plight of the men in the water. He also knew that no ships would arrive until at least midnight. He could see that there were many survivors who wouldn't last that long. Atterbury agreed to orbit above Marx and help him find a spot to land where his crew could help the most survivors. Circling in the Dumbo, Marx and Lefkowitz assessed the conditions. The wind was due north, with swells a dozen feet high. Marx transmitted the news to Peleliu. We'll attempt open sea landing, PV circling the area. This time, the message arrowed straight to his squadron skipper, who, without benefit of Marx's previous message, blustered and raved, wanting to know what sort of fool stunt Marx thought he was up to. Everyone in the Dumbo squadrons viewed an attempt to land on the open sea as an event that merited equal measures of cursing and prayer. The word attempt, though, was to Adrian Marx an almost foreign concept. There was little he had tried in life that he had not achieved. It did not matter to him that open sea landings were against regulations, nor that he had never even practiced one. Men in the water were dying, and he was in a position to save them. He dared the ocean to defy him. In the belly of the Dumbo, Marx's crew strapped themselves in tight. This was going to be dicey. Just after 5 p.m., against a lowering sun, Marx drew on everything he knew and every ounce of courage he had. He executed a power stall into the wind and slammed his airplane belly first into the back of a huge swell. The Dumbo's hull screeched in fury emitting all the sounds of an accident. The crew pitched forward, safety harnesses crushing their chests. The ocean rejected the plane, batting it 15 feet back into the air. Marx and Lefkowitz rocked aft, heads whiplashed against their seatbacks. The propellers roared in protest, and for a moment, the plane hung suspended over the whitecaps. Fighting physics. Marx gripped the control column with both hands. The Dumbo's belly smashed into the wave and it bounced again, but not as high this time. Marx wrestled the controls, willing the plane to obey. Finally, the Dumbo breached the swell's shining skin. Blue water sprayed up over the cockpit windshield and slid away again as the sea gave way, grudgingly as though surrendering to an invasion. Playmate 2 settled into the ocean, rivets popping from her hull. In the rear of the plane, the crew looked at each other and exhaled. They were still alive. The sun dipped lower, painting the water with fire. No one wasted time. Marx's navigator, Ensign Hensley, assessed the damage. Seawater squirted into the cabin through open seams and showered down through cracks in the overhead hatches. Inverted showers sprouted up through the rivet holes and seams below. Hensley worked with the plane captain to stuff pencils and cotton into the voids. 
Water streamed into the radio compartment at a slow but steady rate. They couldn't stop the leak, so Hensley set up a bailing rotation that would ultimately produce about a dozen buckets per hour. Lefkowitz went aft to organize the rescue party, while Marx remained in the cockpit, the Dumbo undulating underneath him like a pelican riding swells. Over the radio, he and Atterbury talked out a plan. They agreed that the men in groups, even those with only life jackets, stood a better chance of surviving the night than those who were floating alone. They decided that Mark should water taxi near the lone swimmers and pull them aboard. They did not know that every man in the water had been there for more than four days. Since Marks could not see over the twelve-foot swells, Atterbury circled overhead to guide him. The operation was halting at first. Hensley stood in the open hatch on the starboard side of the plane, with the boarding ladder lowered. When Marks taxied near a survivor, Hensley threw out a life ring with a line attached to it. But the men in the water were so weak that few could hold on to the ring as the taxiing plane dragged it by. When they did manage to hold on, they could not climb the ladder by themselves. Hensley was not a big man, but he had wrestled in college and rippled with muscle. He hoisted each man aboard using brute strength. The first man he pulled aboard was James Smith, a seaman second, who had been serving his time in the brig with five days' bread and water up until a few short hours before the ship sank. Hungry, tired, and sick of what he'd witnessed over the past four and a half days, he pushed his way toward the plane and made sure Marks didn't pass him by. But once aboard, the crew didn't have time to find out who he was or what ship had sunk before Smith passed out. John Woolston saw the plane in the water shed his leaden life jacket, stretched out his arms, and swam toward his future. When the plane was just a few yards away, he saw a life ring sail from an open door and hit the water nearby. Woolston reached out to grab it, but missed, and the ring floated away. He had overestimated his strength. Now, without the jacket, he was barely staying afloat, if he couldn't make the plane, he was finished. Weakly, Woolston treaded water, and the next thing he knew, he was airborne. Hensley had reached down from the open hatch, scooped Woolston from the drink, and pitched him over his head into the cargo bay like a sack of flour. As the rescue proceeded, the airmen were shocked at the condition of the survivors. They were emaciated and blistered, broken-limbed, and burned to the bone, some missing whole sections of skin. Many screamed in agony when Hensley grabbed their arms to haul them aboard. Marx wagered that many of them would not have survived another night. He was astonished when some of the survivors said they were from USS Indianapolis, and that they'd been sunk just after midnight on July 30th. This was August 2nd. How was it possible that no one had known Indianapolis was missing? Marx was still in contact with Doyle, 
but he didn't dare blurt out over the radio that Indianapolis had been sunk. He also did not have time to code a message about the survivor's identity. There were still too many men in the water and too many sharks. Instead, he urged Clater on the radio to make his best possible speed. There may be enemy submarines in the area, Marx warned. Use caution. Marx kept up his taxi. In an effort to save the singles, he passed knots of astonishingly skeletal men who called out, Water! and Save us! Then, when Marx taxied past, their cries changed to, Wait! and Don't go! Their angry, desperate pleas tore at his mind. Who was he to pick and choose lives to save? Who was he to play God? One of the men yelling was Lyle Umenhofer. Wearing a pneumatic life belt himself, he had a man on each side of him and was holding their heads out of the water so their sodden vests didn't pull them under. When he saw the big Dumbo heading toward his little group, Umenhofer's heart soared, and then the plane taxied right by. Hey, he shouted, how about us? Hensley stood in the open hatch on the starboard side of the plane and yelled in reply, We'll be back to get you. At that, Umenhofer felt the fight return to his limbs. They'd been identified. They were going to be saved. There was no way he would let go of his buddies now. Late in the afternoon, the McVeigh group spotted yet another plane. But this one, well to the south, was behaving differently, circling. Then other planes joined in. For the next few hours, the McVeigh group watched the aircraft orbit. There must be other survivors, someone said. Apparently, it was just their small group that had drifted this far north, McVeigh said. What he did not say was that this meant they were in a terrible fix. The circling plane had moved steadily farther south. If it kept moving south and his group kept moving north, it looked as though they would not be found. Charles McKissick swam to the Dumbo and climbed in, then directed Marks back to Harrell. The Dumbo's massive wing towered over the Marine like a great sheltering roof, and its throaty engines blocked all other sound. Hensley pulled Harrell aboard, and the air crew stacked him against a bulkhead where other survivors were wedged in like cordwood. Harrell stared at the other men, oil-drenched and skeletal, until a series of metallic bangs caught his attention. It was a survivor, whacking a can of green beans on a deck bolt to try to open it. The man's pounding appeared all the more desperate, because his eyes were a pair of bulging red sores. Harold's heart flipped in his chest. It was Spooner. Sir, managed to punch a hole in the cold hand and been sipping from it. Hey, Marine. Hey, Marine, Harold said. How about sharing some of that with me? Leave me alone. Booner, Booner, it's me, it's me, Harold. But beneath his tortured eyes, Spooner's face split in a grin, and he nearly leapt into Harold's lap. Overjoyed, 
Harold thanked God, Harold letting him keep his promise to his brother Marine. Then, the two men shared the best drink either one of them would ever have. Warm green bean juice from a can. As darkness descended on Doyle, Graham Clater laid on speed. Marks had been right. Clater did receive a secret dispatch ordering all available fleet units to the scene of some awful disaster. Doyle's radio men received the message an hour after Clater headed that way on his own. Clater, a summa cum laude graduate of Harvard Law 1936, had never cottoned to the status quo. After Harvard, he'd had his pick of lucrative Wall Street law firms, but chose instead to clerk for U.S. Appeals Court Justice Learned Hand, and then for Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in D.C. With war looming in 1941, he tried to join the Navy, but was rejected as too old. Then, an enterprising recruiter found a special program for overage volunteers with seagoing experience. Did Clater have seagoing experience? The recruiter wanted to know. Yes, Clater said. He had sailed the Chesapeake Bay in his own boat. That was all the recruiter needed. Now, at 33, Clater had two seagoing command tours under his belt. His long, serious face reminded people a little of the actor Humphrey Bogart, and like Bogart, Clater's eyes were susceptible to a twinkle. Clater still did not know which ship had sunk. At 4.33 p.m., a dispatch from Peleliu had indicated that two more rescue vessels were steaming to the scene, USS Madison and USS Ralph Talbot. At 6.30 p.m., he received a new dispatch with updated information from both Peleliu and the planes, including corrected positions. Clater adjusted course accordingly. Over scratchy airwaves, he had maintained constant contact with Marks and Atterbury since early afternoon. He monitored Marks's open sea landing and Atterbury's overhead vectors. He knew about the sharks and about the men being pulled onto Marks's plane. Doyle's chief engineer called the bridge from the engine room wanting to know how long Clater intended to keep up flank speed. Some of the ship's line bearings were getting hot, and he'd changed the oil on them several times, the engineer said. We can't keep this speed up, or we're going to blow the engines. If they blow, they blow, Clater replied, surprising his crew. We've got men in the water. <laughs>